Well, today is uh, is a unique Sunday in in the calendar year. Um, it is that Sunday or that period of time that falls between Christmas and New Year's. It kind of feels like a no man's land, doesn't it? You've went through the the Christmas holidays. You've You've eaten a lot, at least I have. Uh, maybe your suit feels a little bit tighter this morning than it did, or your dress, or whatever it might be. And yet, it, the new year hadn't started yet. You still have uh, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, and so there's still holidays. And, and then people kind of get back into the, into the groove. And the reason I say that to you this morning is because you're going to have to work harder than you normally do. You have to work harder to focus on why you're here this morning. Because while there's holidays and Christmas days and New Year's coming up, I love them all, uh, it's easy to get full. It's easy to get full of celebrations and things and lose your focus and actually drift away. The devil didn't take a break or go to sleep over the holidays. In fact, he probably worked overtime. Your flesh didn't go anywhere, did it? Some of you actually had it rise over the, the holidays. And the world is, is still out there. But God has carved out one of the most blessing, one of the most greatest blessings that, that we experience. He's carved out one day out of the week in which He has commanded that you, His people, gather together and hear Him speak. Isn't that a blessing? And so that's what God's going to do this morning. And so I want you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, because you don't want to miss what He has to say. And in fact, this message, while it is the, the, the crescendo of son, of son of David, Son of Abraham, and Son of God, it actually echoes that, that sentiment that I just gave you. You need to pay closer attention to what you have heard so you don't drift away from it. That is the, the, the application of, of all of Hebrews chapter 1. And you have one more passage to look at, and it's actually the best of all. It's the crescendo of all the promises made long ago. And, and while the, the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant are breathtaking, they both point toward the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of all the promises. And God, we, we've heard and we've seen, He unfolds that progressively. God promised the seed of the woman in Genesis 3. He promised the, a son through Abraham. He promised a king through David. But the coming of the Son of God was His supreme revelation. Jesus Christ not only fulfills the promise, He reveals God to us. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 says. While the characters change, Abraham and Sarah, David and Bathsheba, Mary and Joseph, God moves through history toward the singular revelation, which is the coming of of his son. It's been rightly said that the coming of Christ is the hinge upon which all human history turns. I mean, there's no more significant event that has ever taken place up to this point than the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Every day when your calendar turns, there is a reminder. We have been 2,018 years and how many ever days from the coming of Jesus Christ, as I heard someone remind me of this past week. Before the incarnation, the virgin birth, you had a promise. God made a promise. After Christ's death and resurrection, we proclaim news. It's good news. It's taken place. There's a promise coming, and now that promise has come, and His death, burial, and resurrection has happened, so we proclaim news. And in between, you have this miraculous story about the birth and life of God's Savior, His Son. In, in a nutshell, it's about God revealing Himself in a, in a unique way. That's Christmas a way that he'd never done so before. And he did this by taking human nature and entering into his own creation. And Hebrews 1 tells us this is the most significant of all revelations that God has given. Look, if you would, at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Notice how he talks about old and what he talks and how he talks about new. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets... In many portions and in many ways, in these latter days, or in these last days, He has spoken to us, Revelation, in His Son. The writer says, since creation, God has spoken. The Bible tells us that. The heavens declare the glory of God. You you see that there is something bigger than you, that there is a Creator. God has spoken in various ways in differing levels of disclosure. But the Bible says, in these last days, He has spoken to us in the clearest way possible, and that was through His His Son. And the writer of Hebrews declares the coming of Jesus initiated new revelation, unparalleled to the past. Jesus Christ would fully reveal what all previous revelations pointed to, what all previous revelations spoke about. Creation reveals that there is a Creator, and the Lord Jesus Christ tells us exactly who that Creator is. And the pages of the Bible even tell us His His name. And Hebrews begins with, God has spoken in many ways. So prior to the fall, you know that God spoke to a man as He does a friend. He walked with Adam in the cool of the day. When sin broke that fellowship, He revealed Himself to select people in divine dreams and visions and angels. And, and when He made a covenant with His people and would, would live in their midst, he, he spoke through the writers of Scripture and through the prophets. But all they ever saw was a dim shadow cast compared to the coming of Jesus Christ. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 says. Prior to the moment of Christ's coming, the Old Testament saints looked forward to the light promised. And when they did, they saw a figure, but a shadowy figure. They saw saw that figure through the prophecies, some of which we've looked at the the last two Sundays. But now we, on the other side, we look with the light shining full in His wonderful face, and we see who God is. Do you want to know who God is? Do you want to know what He's like? Read the Gospels. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the writer says. And that's the entire message of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is superior. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, which we're not going to look at the whole book, obviously, but Jesus is better than the angels. That's 
All of the message that we'll take this morning is, is in that context, that Jesus is, is better than the angels. And God reveals specific things about Jesus that we'll look at. In chapter 3, He's greater than Moses. In chapter 4 through 7, He's a superior high priest. In chapter 8, He mediates a better covenant. And in chapter 9 through 10, He provides a better sacrifice. Therefore, the reader should place their faith in Christ alone and keep it there. I mean, that's a summary of the book of Hebrews. But the writer not only tells us that Jesus is a supreme, God's supreme revelation, but he ends this, this very first discussion about the Son with, a, with an interesting question. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and beginning in verse 1. I'm going to give you the bookends of, the, of our passage. We read from verse 1, 1, and we're going to end in verse 4 of chapter 2. So God gives a superior revelation to Christ in verse 1, and then after he talks about that superior revelation, in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer asks this question. For this reason. For what reason? For the reason that Jesus is this revelation. And then after describing parts of that revelation. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Why? So that we will not drift away. For if the Word, the Word in the past, the revelation in the past, spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, the reward penalty, you don't get a reward for your disobedience, you get a penalty for your disobedience. And here's the question. If that's true, and it is, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So great a salvation that comes through so great a revelation. And it was spoken by the Lord Himself and confirmed by many signs and wonders. That's a legitimate question, isn't it? If God has done all of this, if He made a promise to Eve, if, if, if there's a... Uh, uh, made a promise to, to Abraham to bring a son, if, if he brought a Davidic covenant to promise a king, if the coming of, of God is Christ Himself, and God reveals Himself, He confirms it all through the Old Testament and through the nation of Israel, if He confirmed it through coming Himself and speaking Himself and through signs and wonders, it, if all of that's true, if we ne reject or neglect so, so great a revelation and so great a salvation, would it be unjust for God to judge us? And, and the obvious answer is, is no. Let's look at this specific revelation. There are five of them in Hebrews chapter 1 that leads us up to, to this question. And then we'll ask it again before the end of the day. There are five compelling revelations about the Son of God in Hebrews chapter 1, all in the context of being greater than the, the angels. And the first thing he says is that Jesus is revealed as the exalted Son. In verse 1, God, after He spoke... Look at verse 2. In the last days He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. He appointed and He created. And Jesus Christ is revealed 
not only there, but in the verses to come, as, as the Son of God, the exalted Son. He's not just the Son of Abraham or the Son of David, but He is the very Son of God. Now, one of the most difficult things for pagans, for people that are not Christians to believe, is that there is one exclusive God, not many. Pagans of old believed in, in many gods, the pantheon of gods, the pantheon of deities. They, they, had a, they had a god for everything. The Romans said they never met a god that they, they didn't like. And today, people think themselves refined, and so they don't believe in many gods, they believe in many ways, Right? We don't believe in many gods. We don't believe in those little statues. We just say that there are many ways in which you can get to God, whether it's Allah or Christ or Buddha or spiritual energy or whatever it might be. All will lead you to the same place. Wherever that place is, we don't really know. Atheists say there is no God. Agnostics say you can't really know. And the religious say there there are many ways. It really doesn't matter what path you're on. And yet, this verse, these two verses, declare that there is one God and Jesus Christ is His name. Jesus is the supreme revelation of God Himself, the singular God, the one God that we saw all the way back in Genesis 12 and in 2 Samuel. And He is the exact imprint or representation of that God. Look at verse 3. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. That means the Son is identical in substance to God, being fully God Himself. He is one God, not many. He alone is God. God is exclusive. And nothing taught in Scripture or believed by Orthodox Christians contradicts or denies that. And yet this one being exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit operating in in order. They're one, they're equal, they're divine, and and their attributes are inseparable from their substance, and yet they're equal in power and glory. And verse 5 declares that Jesus' birth, or Jesus' birth, I should say, declares Him as God the the Son. Look if you would at verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So God spoke in the past, and now he has supreme revelation. That supreme revelation is in his son, the coming of his son. The coming of the son of God is, he is the exact representation of God, of his nature. And yet he is also the son of God. He took upon himself human flesh in order to fulfill the will of the father and the Father's plan to save. The context here, again, is showing how Jesus is superior to the angels. Look at verse 5 again. For to which of the angels did he ever say? He didn't say that to any of the angels. What does he say? You're my son. Today I have begotten you. What does that mean? It's just to show Jesus' superiority to the angels. The writer is quoting from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and he also quotes the passage that we saw last week. Look at what else it says in verse 5. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. That's 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. He declares Christ to be the Son of God. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Not just about Solomon, as we saw. Jesus always was the Son, but he took on human flesh. 
in the incarnation. It's, it's a Latin word. And you can hear other words that are familiar to you. You are a carnivore. At least I am a carnivore. Do you like to eat meat? I do. Carn, flesh. You're a flesh eater. You also hear it in carnival or carnal. I don't want to be a carnal Christian. I don't want to be a fleshly person. And the word carn means flesh. Incarnation, the enfleshment of God. In the incarnation, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took in union with Himself a human nature, which He did not possess before. He was always the the second person of the Trinity. He was always the eternal Son. But He took upon Himself. He enfleshed Himself. And He did that without ceasing to be God or losing any part of His godness. He was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. The second person of the Trinity was not confined to a human body, the human body of Jesus of Nazareth. He was Jesus, uniquely, fully God and fully man. And Christmas is much more than Jesus coming as a baby. It's a profound, supernatural event. It's the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise of the Old Testament. It's, it's God's greatest revelation to us. And by it, He makes future promises possible. In the person of Christ, in this enfleshment of Christ, that provides for the work of Christ, which is why you can't celebrate His dying without celebrating His birth and vice versa. Let me say it this way. The incarnation in Bethlehem makes possible for the substitutionary death of Calvary. And he's God's supreme revelation. Philippians 2 describes it. You know Philippians 2 well. Having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and becoming, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. While he condescended, he took on human flesh. It didn't change one ounce of his deity. He still possessed it. That's why he's the begotten of God. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, always was the Son, but in taking on the human flesh, he became the begotten of God. And the title Son is important. It demonstrates His willful submission to the Father. He is the Son, and the Son submits to the Father. His work as the Son demonstrates His his role to do the Father's will. He comes to do the Father's will. And Hebrews chapter 10 declares that significance. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10, if you would. Hebrews chapter 10. Now watch how the writer goes from old to to Christ. And why Jesus, the He comes as the exalted Son, why the incarnation, why Jesus having a human body is so important for your salvation. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of good things to come, there's the shadow of things to come in the future, 
and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect to those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered. You know the purposes of the law, of having to do it over and over and over, is to remind them that it didn't. there's still something that has to happen. It didn't totally take away their sin. But you've got to do it again next year. You've got to do it again next year. You've got to do it again next year. And it's a reminder that there's one who is going to come. Verse 2, otherwise they would have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But all they had consciousness of, all right. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when He comes into the world, that's Christ, He says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. That doesn't completely satisfy you. Satisfy you. What does? But a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. It didn't fully satisfy you. It didn't fully satisfy your righteous demands. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. What was the will of God? That Christ would become the perfect sacrifice. How does He become the perfect sacrifice? He takes upon Himself a human body in incarnation. Verse 8, And after saying above sacrifices and offering and whole burnt offerings, and sacrifices for sins you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which you offered according to the law. And then he said, Behold, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's why there's not sacrifice of Jesus. That's why the Mass, the Catholic Mass, is blasphemous. It's a re-sacrificing of Christ over and over and over. And Christ doesn't need re-sacrificed. He was sacrificed once for all because there is no more consciousness of sin. And what I mean by that is your conscience has been cleansed because of the, the blood of Christ. Jesus is the exalted Son. He's revealed that way. The great revelation of God is that Jesus is the exalted Son. And it would be a tragedy if you neglect salvation offered by the Son of God. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 1. Because He's also revealed as the eternal God. He's revealed as the eternal God. Look, if you will, at verse 6. And when he says again, and when he and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, "Let all the angels of God worship him." And of the angels, he says, "Who makes his angels a minister of fire? Who makes his angels?" winds and his ministers a flame of fire, but of the, to the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is established forever. Now again, this is the context of how Jesus is greater than the angels. But look at why it says he's greater. In verse 6, he's the firstborn. Not in time, but in position. 
and prominence. He's in the position of, of God, brings the firstborn into the world. And the writer says he's preeminent. He's in the position of the Son of God, so he is to be worshipped. Let all the angels of God worship him. If Jesus is not God, then to affirm that is idolatry. If Jesus is God, to deny that is heresy. You understand that? I mean, these are significant words. And many other religions present Jesus as important, but they fail to declare His deity as the Father does here. The Koran says Jesus was a prophet of God. Some sects of Judaism say He was a great teacher sent from God. The Mormons say that He was the brother of Lucifer formed by a physical union of God and Mary. The Jehovah's Witness say He is the, a perfect man, but not God. But anything less than Jesus Christ was fully God, equal with the Father and the Spirit, is a denial of Scripture and leaves you with no salvation. Because that's exactly what this verse says. It's heresy. heresy, heresy. It is. Verse 6. The Son is the eternal God and must be worshipped by angels as well as men. And worship is reserved for God alone, isn't it? Here's the idolatry part. If Jesus was not God, then this passage promotes idolatry. It doesn't just demand men to, to honor, honor Him like the, like the subject does a king, but to worship Him as deity. Uh, what did the Magi do whenever they, whenever they came and found Him? If Jesus was not the Son, he, he couldn't have done the Father's will. If He wasn't the Son of God, He couldn't have done the Father's will and been a perfect sacrifice. And if Jesus wasn't God, then you have no righteousness to enter into heaven. There's the two sides. The body to die, God to bring about and earn the righteousness that you and I failed to earn. Think of this as the, the hymn writer whenever he states, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain for me whom Him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be? What's amazing? That Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? God? Think of it. The God... God, the one who we should worship, laid down His life for you. It would be a tragedy, as the writer says, to neglect salvation offered by God Himself. Let's look at the third one here. He's a preeminent king. If you would at verse 8, He shifts from let all the angels of God worship Him to this one has a throne. He goes from a son, you are my son, this day I've begotten you, explains... How the Son is going to be begotten, is going to come from the Father. That Son is going to do the will of the Father. He's God. He's the one who's worshipped. And He also has a throne. Verse 8. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God. There's the God part again, but this God now is a throne. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter uh, is the scepter of His kingdom. And you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. He's going to be anointed. He's chosen by God. 
Here's the contrast to the angels again. Of the Son of God, he quotes Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Here in the Father's own words, he declares the deity of the Son. With this verse, the writer of Hebrews completes the presentation of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. He's the revelation of God in verse 1. He's the prophet. He made purifications for our sins. He's priest in verse 3. And now he is the reigning king in verse 3 and also here in verse 8. This is a reference to the Davidic covenant. Jesus Christ is king. He'll reign forever and ever. And one day... He's going to do that on the throne of David on the earth. And you say, how can that be? How can Jesus be king over all the earth? And how can He have a throne? How can the Bible say that? Because when I look around, it doesn't look like that people think that Jesus is king. There are people that that are not acting like Jesus is king. A king has a throne, that's a position of authority, and he has a place to reign. And Christ is king over all. But in His sovereign mercy, He is allowing usurpers to live in His kingdom while calling them to repent. You understand why that's happening? When you look around and you see people sinning and thumbing their nose in God's face and denying who Jesus is and all of these other things, yes, that is horrible. But the other thing I want you to think about is God is merciful. That's what you should be thinking. God is merciful. Because why is that happening? Because he can't do anything about it? (laughs) Of course he can do something about it. Why isn't he doing anything about it? Because he is long-suffering, not wanting people to repent. Or not wanting people to perish, but wanting them to repent. That's what Acts chapter 17 says. That's what Paul says on the Areopagus. That's what he says on Mars Hill. That's what he says to the Gentiles who don't know anything about what we're talking about here. They're not Jews. They don't have the background of the Old Testament. Paul says to those usurpers, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, that's the coming of Christ, He commands all people everywhere, not just Jews, but Gentiles, all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because He's fixed a day on which He'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, whom He's anointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul says, Christ has no need of anything from men. He made all of them. He placed them where they're at. And then in that verse that we just read, or I just read to you, it says he overlooked their ignorance throughout all of, all of that time, meaning he, he let them live in his world without bringing immediate judgment. He allows Satan to have a certain level of dominion right now. He allows false gods to be worshipped, which aren't really gods at all, but they're they're demonic props. And he lets men run around like little usurpers and proclaim all the different nonsense, all the different things that they proclaim and deny who God is. And and they act as rebels into the world. He, He allows all of that. But there's coming a day that he is fixed. It's a fixed day in which He'll call all men to an account. And He's a fixed day in which He'll judge the world. Who will judge? The man God's appointed, the resurrected Christ. That, that's how you know who's going, to, who's going to, to, to judge. And that is Jesus. He rose He rose from the dead. 
the man he appointed is the resurrected Christ. Where is he going to, where is he going to judge from? He's going to judge from his throne. And then there will be no rebels or deniers for every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what he's saying here. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. I promised it through David. It's coming. You've loved righteousness. You've hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has appointed you. He's anointed you. Your judge. Your king. You're the preeminent king. And not only that, you're the creator. And all this packed in Hebrews chapter 1. Look, if you would, at verse 10. He's revealed as the sovereign creator. It would be a tragedy to neglect salvation offered by your king. He's revealed as the sovereign creator. He has the right to rule. If you would, at verse 10. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. And this is not just throwaway language. This is, this is about Jesus. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you'll roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. What's he saying? You are the creator. You brought this creation into the world. You are also the one that will roll up this creation like a scroll one day, and yet you are unchanged. You were the same before creation. You will be the, the, the sovereign creator in, in, in ending it, and you'll be the same one whenever you begin it anew. This verse has established Jesus Christ as the creator of the universe. And his right to rule stems from his position. And the fact that he's the creator. Somebody who may make something has the, has the right to do as he pleases with it. And God would be no less wrong or, or no less just in any way if he let all of us perish. But he doesn't do that. He brings a supreme revelation. And reveals himself as the son, as, as God, as a preeminent king, as a creator. He has the right. I mean, you understand that in a much smaller way. What do you tell your children? Those of you who have children. You expect them to do what you say, to obey you because you are their father. My mother used to say, I brought you into this world and I could take you out, right? Probably said that. What's she saying? I have authority over you. I'm your mom. God's saying, I have authority over you. I created you. I have that right. And he does. Whether you acknowledge that right or not. And yet God's rights are much greater than human beings. He made you, the planet you stand on. He even sustains every part of it now. You're breathing His air. You're eating His food. You're living under His sun. You'll lay your head down tonight, and whatever you lay it down on, it, it, it's by material that, that originated with Him. The Bible says, "...in Him we live and move and have our being." And He gives us life and breath and everything. So He has absolute right to do with you and I as He wills. Then you know what He does? He doesn't bring immediate judgment. <laughs> he calls us to repentance. And He offers us salvation by coming to us. Who you are is by God's grace 
We don't judge the Creator who made us. We lack position. That's what Romans tells us. Oh, the depths and the riches of God. Who is known as mind or been as counselor? Verse 11 in Hebrews says, Everything around you in the physical world will perish, but God will remain like a cloak. He'll effortlessly roll it up. I mean, think about that, that imagery there. You brought a coat this morning. When you pick it up, you're going to effortlessly pick that coat up or that cloak up and, and you're going you're gonna to fold it and you're going to carry it out. You're going to throw it over your arm and you're going to carry it out. That's the imagery here. What God's going to do with the entire universe, He's going to roll it up. That's how effortless it will be. How powerful He is. Second Peter says it's going to melt in fervent heat. He's going to roll one up and like a garment, He's going to unfurl a new one. And Revelation says there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth which is going to come. How foolish to think we could counsel or question a God like that. (laughs) As if there's something He hasn't considered. He's the Creator. And this Creator offers you salvation. (laughs) The Son offers you salvation. God offers you salvation. The King offers you salvation. The Creator, your Creator offers you salvation. And you shouldn't neglect it. You should be careful not to drift away from it. And even more foolish in light of all that is, is the fact that Jesus is the, the righteous judge, the final one. If you would, at verse 13. Again, all of this in the context, He's greater than the angels. But to which of the angels has He ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation, the salvation that's brought from the Son? This is all pointing back to Christ, all glory to Christ. The angels are servants of those who will be partakers and who will inherit the salvation of Christ. He is superior. And the writer of Hebrews ends this presentation of the Son with this quote from Psalm 110. He declares Jesus as the sovereign Lord over all who will reign as the righteous judge. Sit at my right hand. Look back, if you would, at um, verse uh, 3, the end of verse 3. It says, And He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, talking about how Jesus reveals God because He is God. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. Who He is, and now He goes to His sacrifice, what He accomplished on the cross. When He had made purification of sins, He takes away sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on, on high. He sat down, He's not standing. He's not a priest that goes in and has to offer a sacrifice year after year because he made complete purification for sins and he doesn't have to stand ministering. He's seated because his ministry from the sacrificial standpoint is finished. Sit at my right hand. And he's seated at the right hand of God. He's seated on God's throne. And that's going to be, according to verse 13, until... Something happens. What's going to happen? He's going to bring all these usurpers. 
all these rebels into account until I make your enemies a footstool from, from your feet. He's already conquered. He's already gained the victory. But there's going to be a procession one day where those will come before His throne and acknowledge that He is the judge. Acknowledge that He is the victor. The imagery here is a footstool is placed before by conquered kings or conquering kings and their subjects would come. And all the heads of the other places would come and, and they would there would be a footstool before their throne and they would come and symbolically lay their lay their heads on this footstool at the base of the throne, and the king would come and he put his foot on the neck of the of the conquered other king. And it would be a sign of subservience. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Sit at my right hand until all your enemies come and they lay their neck at your feet and you place your foot on their, on their neck. Satan will do that one day. He'll come and bow before Christ. And Christ will judge all men in the same way. And He'll judge you as well. And He'll do it by the very mercy that He extends to you right now. Jesus didn't come to enact judgment the first time. He came to inaugurate the day of salvation in these last days. But the next time He comes, it won't be to, to save, it'll be to rule. He's seated at the right hand, interceding on your behalf, being offered to those who will repent and believe. But the enemies will come before Him, Christ's enemies. John chapter 12 says, If anyone hears my words, this is Jesus, and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And on the last day, as you stand before Christ, who is God, all of your works will be judged. The books will be opened. Not to see if you've earned your way into heaven, but to show and prove that you're unrighteous. The very words, maybe the words that I even speak to you this morning, will be your judge. And on that day, He'll say, Did I not come to you as the exalted Son? Did I not offer you salvation as, as God? Did I not reveal myself as King? Did I not show that I was the Creator? Did I not say that, that I'm seated in, in, until a fixed day? Did I not die for a purification for your sins? Did I not offer you all this? And, and you'll say, yes, you did. The words that I've spoken will judge Him on the last day. And He'll say that you would not come. And sadly, so now I send you away be a tragedy to neglect that kind of salvation offered by your judge before it happens. The condemnation is fixed. You don't need scales. You've already been weighed in the balance. You've already been found wanting. The judgment's already been given. You don't, you, there's no trial. You don't go to court. It's already been held. You're guilty. I'm guilty. And the judge is saying, before I pass the sins, I'm offering you pardon. The judge himself is saying that. 
which is why the writer says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, for this reason. For what reason? For this reason. For all of these reasons that, that I just gave. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. The word drift away is a nautical word. It, 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 means to, it means when you don't anchor, when you don't tie the boat up to shore. You ever boated? You ever, you ever had a, like a boat slip? And you don't tie it up to shore? Even where there's not a current? It just it drifts away, it floats away? That's the words here. For this reason we must pay even closer attention to what we've heard. Now, I preach this sermon to you today. And will it be enough for you the rest of the day? Maybe. Will it be enough for you tomorrow? No. <laughs> will it be enough for you the next day? No. <laughs> Before I lay my head down tonight, I will need to pay closer attention to the words of Christ or I will drift away because of my heart and because of your heart. You don't need a sermon once a Sunday. You don't need somebody to just stir you up. You need to pay close attention to the words of God day in and day out until He comes. <laughs> because He's the Son. He's your God. He's your King. He's your Creator. And because He's the righteous judge that, that has already pardoned you, you desire to do that. You want to do that. You, you long to do that. And so you come paying closer attention. You come to moments like this and say, I get to come to church and I get to hear God speak and I get to press in and I get to fight <laughs> to believe so I can then live for Him. So I'll not drift away. And then here's a warning. Verse 2, For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable in every transgression of disobedience, if the old covenant, if the shadow, if what God said through angels and visions and others, every disobedience received a just penalty. How will you escape or we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Even after it was spoken through the Lord Himself and confirmed by the apostles and then by witnesses. It's a legitimate question, isn't it? If God has done all of this, if He made a promise to Eve and delayed judgment... If He made a promise to Abraham, if He made a covenant with David, if he, if he comes to us in the person of Christ, and if we reject it or we neglect it, would it be unjust for God to judge us? Of course it would not. And given all the Son has done and all that God has made plain, how shall we escape? We will not escape. If you neglect so great a salvation... Let's bow your heads.